Let's start. Any any prayer requests? Does he know yet what it is? Um, they're thinking Crohn's right now, but he also had an abscess and so they've had a lot of complications. What's his name? His name is Vance. Vance? Mm-hmm. Mary. Lots going on. People are coming down with bronchial stuff everywhere. It's home. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself through the day. For all the many ways in which your goodness um, surrounds us, um, supports us. Um, We're at the end of Revelation. It's the end of the Bible. It's the end of your words to us formally in Scripture. Um, It's a dark work. I'll come back to it in a second, but um, I'll come back to it. I'd like to offer a special request for all of us that we take Revelation seriously. Most of us live in scriptures, and Revelation gives us a very, very different view of ourselves and of our world. Um, heavier burden because it. Um, it brings us up close to final ends. Um, we can't put them off. We can't live in illusions. They're there. And um, <laughs> there can't be any greater mercy than the mercy you've showed us. Um, but your words to us are plain in Revelation 2. Um, you speak pretty plainly. Um, help us to take seriously all that all that you are offering us um, by way of help. Um, I ask for a special grace for all those that we carry in our hearts. There are sicknesses and illnesses and medical problems everywhere. Be with Vance. Um, um, help them discover what it is that put him in the hospital and watch over him while he's there. Help him to have a good recovery, whatever your will. Um, Help us never to forget, even where there are difficulties, you allow them so that we can get better. So help us to hold on to the good of things when things are hard for us, particularly in our families. Um, Connie, I'm sorry, the the babe's name? Sebastian. Sebastian. Um, For the gift of Sebastian to Connie and her family, a wonderful spirit from her, and I assume, I suspect from her mom and passing down. Um, um, the gift of this new child, um, watch over the mom and dad and um, keep the child safe from any harm. See it through this early period when it's so vulnerable. Um, for those of you who didn't hear, and I can't believe anybody here didn't hear, um, for any, God, sorry, Connie. For any of you who didn't hear, the, the babe was born on the floor. 
was sudden and fast and, well, I mean, expected, but not that quickly, but board on the floor, and um, it's doing well. Um, <laughs> my own comic sense of things, born on the floor, this child will be a tough child, so strengthen it, um, <laughs> let it live up to its beginnings <laughs> to be a good, tough child. Um, watch over Mary, um, she's been so steadfast and um, she's suffering right now, so be with her, help her to recover her health, let her know that she has our prayers and our hearts with her. Watch over her and help her to recover. And watch over all of us um, while we're away in this break period. Um, help us to take seriously what we've been given to, to live it. It means taking you to the world, making your kingdom present where so often it's not wanted. Give us the humility to do that, the presence of mind. We've learned a lot. Help us to put that learning to work. Um, um, to not let this world keep us from living you um, with all the pressures that we face around us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. I want to say here, just in the spirit of a prayer, I hope everybody stays well in this break. Take care of yourselves. Um, stay busy um, and out of trouble. I know that will take some doing for some of you. <laughs> Um, and we'll see each other in a few weeks, okay? Amen. Because we're ending um, Revelation tonight, and it's such a dark work, I thought for a prayer we would do a prayer that's an uplifting prayer because you know um, that Revelation ends on a one beautiful note. It's a wonderful end of the Bible. Um, the bridegroom says, come. The bride, his church, says, come. It's a calling to everybody to respond, to come to him. It's the bridegroom. It's, a, it's the promise of a celebration um, to join him. So it's, as, as dark as Revelation is, the, the ending is, all the more joyful because it's set against a very, very dark work. So I, I, I was thinking about a, trying to think of an of, of a uplifting poem, and I chose John Donne's The Good Morrow. I, I'm sure we've read it in the last several years together, but if any of you didn't pick up the stuff, the notes are here, and the poem is here, so help yourself. Um, the Good Morrow, if, if Hold, if I can have your attention, even while you're... The Good Morrow, it, I think, has as its background, biblical background, that night when Christ and Nicodemus meets. I think, is it when um, Christ talks about being reborn in spirit? Isn't that that moment? Being reborn in spirit? <laughs> it's like Sarah receiving the news that she could be pregnant and laughs at God. She's too old, so she, <laughs> um, because nothing's possible with God, of course, so getting pregnant at that age is impossible. She laughs. It's a wonderful moment. Nicodemus has a similar response. Christ talks about being reborn, and Nicodemus' response, how can I do that um, if I don't 
jump back into my mother's womb to be reborn again. I mean, it's funny. Um, I don't think we are, I, not, that, not to my knowledge, we don't see Christ smiling much. He's very, very serious. But some of the exchanges that take place in the Bible are really comic, and this is one of them. So um, we're made aware that a person can have a new birth. He can be re reborn again, actually reborn. Very often, those moments of rebirth come out of, in the context of something painful. We suffer something and it helps bring us to our senses. I remember once when I was teaching at Magdalen and we were doing Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, and one of the students said to me, if you, we did this, that work together, but if you remember, Leontes puts his wife in the tower. Um, he casts his daughter off because he believes that it's illegitimate, it's not his, to die. And, um, and Leonte sends an embassy to the um, temple of Apollo to get what he thinks is going to be a condemnation of his wife, a confirmation of the condemnation he's making of his wife. She's guilty of adultery, the gods will prove it. The embassy comes back and they say the, the embassy from Apollo is that Hermione is not guilty, she's blameless, and Hermione's will live without, or I mean, Leontes will live without an heir until um, what's lost is found. And what's lost is his faith. That's been the problem. And as soon as the oracle speaks, we suddenly get news that um, his son has died. Because if you remember, he keeps denying. He says, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. I'll go to the gods and prove it, I'm right. The gods suddenly say he's wrong, and he imme he's immediately punished. He gets news that his son, his heir, the continuity of the kingdom, gone. And he says, <laughs> I mean, stunned, um, the gods are angry. And immediately after that, we get the news that his wife, Hermione, has died. Um, and the student's question, I remember it, I'll never forget, he said, why is it so often that the worst things have to happen to us before we'll change? That our hard hearts, that our stubbornness, our pride is so great that even with all the help around us, we just don't make a final step. We continue to hold on to the things we have. But his words are wonderful. Why is it that so often the worst things have to happen before you know, we will allow ourselves to be crushed, to be wrong, to say I was wrong. Um, so you know that very often these conversion moments come out of suffering, some great sorrow, and suddenly some light is offered. I don't, we don't have evidence that that's the case with Nicodemus, the, the chosen, give a certain reading of it, but, um, but what we do know is he wants to meet with Christ, and in this meeting, Christ talks with him about being reborn again. And he says, how can I be reborn? How can I jump back into my mother's womb? Um, that's not what it's about. To be reborn in the spirit means, means for us, and it would have meant the same for um, John Donne, to re be reborn in Christ, to learn to love the right way. And John Donne has written poems covering every conceivable range of emotion. Hatred, lust, greed, vengeance. You want to you read good poems? Pick, well, pick up the ones I've given you in our packet, but read John Donne. 
um, the, the lyrics because there's not an emotion, violent, good, joyful, that he has not given form to. So he's one of the most remarkable poets to deal with love, and in one sense, he's the last. We will not find a modern poet since John Donne, after, when the Christian Middle Ages are passing, that's the Renaissance, we're moving into the modern world. We will not find a poet like that again, dealing so directly with love. Okay, so in keeping with the joyful end of Revelation, I thought we would read this. It's about that moment when lovers suddenly realize that there's a good tomorrow, that they've awakened and time is different. It's not the same as it was the day before, you know, or days before that. Love changes the way we look at the world. It changes ourselves because it changes us. It changes the way the world appears to us. That's what Christ meant when he talked about being reborn, okay? So John Donne, The Good Morrow. I wonder, by my troth, what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? Twas so, but this all pleasures, fancies be. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear, for love of all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone, let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world, each hath one and is one. That's as close to the Trinity, you know. They're two different beings, a he and a she, but they're one. My face in thine, thine in mine, appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike that none can slacken, none can die. He could, think about this just for, nobody could have written that poem who didn't have a strong sense of the Trinity and indwelling. Nobody. If love means anything in our Christian world, given the Trinity, it means we're, we're all called to be one in our marriages. And I've said it before, that involves a lot of risk and a lot of pain. Because it means entering into the inner life of another person and allowing something vulnerable in you to open to that other person so that inner life bears each other, okay? I'll read it once more, just um, the good moral. I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved, were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? Twas so. But this all pleasures fancies be, if ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear, for love all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere. 
Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world, each hath one and is one. My faith in thine, thine in mine, appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally, if our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike, that none can slacken, none can die. Okay. Um, if you hold on to your notes for a while, because I'm going um, to to try to tighten this up, since this is our last meeting on uh, Revelation, I'm going to try to stay close to my oh, my notes. Is there a hanky in my thing? Um, I want to leave everybody, if you'll turn to the third page next to the last page. I've asked four questions at the end, but I'd like to ask them now, just to have you hold on to them while we're going through Revelation. You may have other questions of your own. Please add them later or during our work, but, but I want to put these questions out. We've, we've gone through the seals and the trumpets, right? And I've... I've suggested as firmly as I could, it's important to take those things literally while they have a symbolic meaning. Um, a seal is a closed packet containing an edict, something authorized, usually by a king, but somebody in authority, right? You, you put a seal and nobody can um, open it except the designated person. Nobody in heaven can open, that, open those seals that um, John receives, but Christ. And once he opens it, we get a series of these um, ominous figures and catastrophes. Thanks. And they're the beginning of the, the calamities and punishments and destructions sent by God. And I want to put this as emphatically as I can. We live in an age largely Protestant in our world, fundamentalist in the South, um, in, in which it's not uncommon for people to look at Christ as a buddy. That's Arian. Arius remembers the one who made Christ human completely. That's Arian. He's a buddy. He's, there's nothing forbidding to Christ. We read um, Matthew and we read John. I can't picture Christ <laughs> doing anything humorous in Matthew. He doesn't have a sense of humor. He's constantly warning. And all of his parables are full of warnings. And yet he's the font of mercy. The whole call of the modern world is return to Christ. His mercy is there. Just return. Um, so the seals are opened. Um, the punishments come. And then we get the trumpets because the trumpets are announcing something. So they're putting into effect these punishments and catastrophes, okay? So the one thing that has to be seen here in the beginning is that God allows evil. He gives his permission for it. He makes that clear. These things are authorized. That's, that's at the center of our faith, God's permission of evil. Look at, look at the Job story. There's a really good example. The devil came to him 
taunting him about Job and said he wasn't tested. And God said, test him. And you know, Job loses everything. Absolutely everything. Everything. Um, so what we learn is God allows evil to test us and to punishment. Okay? Now, some people will look at that and say, what an what a Old Testament God lacking in mercy. There's another way of looking at it, and I hope we get clear on it later. But at this point, I just wanted to be clear. We've covered those. We went through the seals. We went through the trumpets. Here at the end, we're going to look at the bulls. And the bulls, in some ways, are more treacherous. They're full of fire and a wine burning. They're the last punishment. So one of my questions here at the end, because it'll be one of the sections we look at, is how do we understand the bulls and why bulls? And remember that the image preceding the bulls is, is God takes um, a, 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 a scythe, a scythe, and, um, and um, cuts all the grain to harvest it, and then takes another one, or, or cuts it, and then another one to harvest it. So it's the means of the wine. And so many of the terms used in the end are in terms of wine. Um, the, 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 the blood, the wine blood of the harlot, you know, and um, why the bulls? Why the bulls and this harvest of grapes um, at the end? Okay, that's one question. What's the significance of the bulls? We've looked at the seals and trumpets. They're called the bulls of wrath, okay? And why did God allow for the thousand-year reign, the millennium? He defeated Satan, put him in a bottomless pit. Satan was to stay there for a thousand years, and then he was going to be released. Why would God do that? Serious question. Once again, is this, and I, I think I put this last week, is this an Old Testament God? Because in some ways, people could say how cruel he is. How vindictive. He puts Satan in hell, or, the, or this bottomless pit, rather, for a thousand years, and then he lets him out, and then there's his final battle, Armageddon, I think it's the final thing that leads to the final judgment. Finally, he's, um, he's put in the burning fire forever, and a last judgment is given, and people are judged on their actions and either go to hell or heaven. Why that thousand-year reign? And finally, my last question is, how do all these visions of John relate to the letters that he sent to the seven churches? That was the way it opened, remember? So hold on to that. We, because I think we've lost sight of that, and we shouldn't, we can't. The revelation opens with John being told to send these letters to the seven churches. That means all churches, because remember, seven means complete. It's all of them, even if he identifies cities. And we see the Lord um, chastising those who follow him. These are churches. So he does that, and immediately after he does that, he has these visions. And the visions are dark. So how do we understand the connection between the letters that he sent to the churches, that's how Revelation began, and the revelations themselves? Because in some sense, we have to think, this is partly what's given to the churches, which means us, all of us. Okay? So let me leave those and I'll turn. But any questions on my questions or what I'm asking?
I've got to write a note to Mary tonight. She's been bringing this chair every night, and I keep telling her not to, and now I'm missing it. <laughs> um, any questions about what's what we're trying to deal with in this last session we have on Revelation? Okay. I want to offer one trying to make a brief reflection on Revelation. Suzanne and I were talking about this in the car, and I'd, I'd like to just cast my mind over the whole thing, if I can, with you guys just for a moment to give you my thoughts on this. So these are pretty serious thoughts. Some of you have already you know, had glimpses of before. I think I said before that it's really important to take Revelation seriously. Um, we live with Christ in the Gospels a lot, a lot. Um, and it seems to me it's easy to take him for granted in the Gospels. We shouldn't. He's given dark warnings all the time in his stories and parables, and he gives warnings to the disciples and others. He, um, he finally rejects um, the chosen people and offers himself to the Gentiles, and a whole new aspect of God's work with us opens up. Um, so it seems to me that there's a danger that we can become too familiar with Christ and maybe take him for granted. I may be overstating, but the point that I want to make here is I don't think that can happen if we read Revelation, because when you read Revelation, it is stark. When Suzanne asked me what my feeling about it was, I said, it's, it's scary. It's a little bit frightening. When you read Revelation, um, we're not watching Christ move through the world. We're, we're, we're being made aware of God showing final ends. And one of the, th so two things are made palpable in Revelation. Um, one of them are all these catastrophes. All these catastrophes. Calamities, natural calamities, punishments, people dying, the sea turning red, a third of the world being burned out. Over and over and over again, we keep getting these dark images. Um, so it seems to me it's impossible to get comfortable with Christ walking through the streets, doing what he does. Revelation shows us a very, very dark world. And the second thing to keep in mind in Revelation is we don't get a glimpse of the devil in the Gospels. We can't miss him in Revelation. Everything that's going on in Revelation is set against a war in heaven involving the devil. He went after Mary. He went after Christ. There's a war in heaven. Um, he was cast down into the bottomless pit. He's allowed to come out again. So we're being given an immediate picture of the source of evil, not just a dragon. By the way, I have real problems with modern movies trying to make dragons nice, how to tame your dragon. Drive me nuts. No, I'm not kidding. I really, it's a sore spot for me. The whole modern world wants to undermine, take away evil. It just, it wants to make us comfortable. And, and the way it puts people to sleep, families, because they want to make kids comfortable, not frighten them. There are things that kids should be frightened of. The devil's one of them. Anyway, there's no playing around. We're, we're watching this devil work. And the two beasts, I, I so enjoyed our class last week because I thought we did a really good job of talking about who those beasts were in their connection with um, Satan. Um, so two of the things we cannot miss taking away from Revelation um, is 
something like um, a dark portents, that there are dark things there. And even if Christ suggests them in his parables or in his harsh words to the Jewish leaders, those are verbal. In Revelation, we're seeing their actual effects. They're in front of us, catastrophes, calamities. And the second is the demonic, the devil, the two beasts. Um, and I'll come back to those in a second, but just to give a, a quick, you know, brief overview of, the, of Revelation and certainly what it's meant to me, those are two of the things that stand out in my mind. So um, I'm just encouraging everybody to read Revelation again, take it seriously. We don't get it much from the pulpit. We get brief readings occasionally. I, I, I've told you before, one of the dangers of our church is we keep getting Gospels broken up. We don't read a Gospel as a whole, and my hope, I hope we accomplished it, that in reading Matthew as a whole and John as a whole, we saw things in Matthew that we wouldn't pick up if we hear fragments broken up. Matthew is different from Luke, different from Mark, and John is different from three synoptics. When you read them as a whole, you get a much deeper understanding, and you carry that depth of understanding in your reading of particular passages. We can't do that when they're broken up. So I'm, in one sense, overjoyed to have done this work with you, and I'm being personally honest. And I just would encourage you to pick up Revelation once in a while for a good scare. <laughs> you know, you can't read Revelation without <coughs> saying, am I teasing? I, I need to straighten up here, because here, here's the end of it. So, just so some brief thoughts to start before we go into this. I've got a couple of background things here, but any comments or questions, any observations, anything you'd like to add to any of that? Would you all agree, or would you differ about the darkness of Revelation, how stark it is, and Scary. Yeah. You know, and another thing, you know, Halloween. You know how much I love movies, and although I'm learning, I've got to turn away from them because there's just nothing good coming out of Hollywood today. But I, I think, I don't think I'm exaggerating. 75% of the movies coming out of Hollywood are horror stories. Horror movies. I'm not kidding. They're, they're appealing to sensations, to scare us, to, you know, and, and, and relieve us so we can come out of them. Um, you can get inured to horror stories if you reach all, read all this or watch these movies. I'm, what I'm suggesting, you cannot get inured to Revelation. If you do, take a good look. You know, our culture is, our America is a violent, violent culture. A violent culture. It's all hidden. It's violent. We are a violent. We don't put um, breastplates on and go to war, but we are a violent people. And the, ho the horror movies coming out of Hollywood appeal to that. These dark forces. Um, I won't watch a movie that ends with the dark forces in control. That to me is a failure of a movie, because there are people who believe that the demonic's in control. Christ answered it. He answered the demonic. He chased them away. You know, if a movie doesn't deal with evil, to me, it's it's a question of how serious it is as a movie. That's a criteria for me. It's how much we love, the cost of our love, 
how much it deals with evil. Those are serious concerns for me watching movies or reading books. I don't think I, I, I think I can say this for I have not put on our reading list what I would call a sentimental story. Every one of the stories we've read has dealt with violence and answered it. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, Go Where You Will, Shakespeare. I will not give you guys something sentimental. That stuff drives me nuts. So um, sometime, you know, keep, keep your Bible close and read Revelation. Every once in a while, just to find your feet again. That's a good thing to do, okay? Bob, go ahead. Come on. Come on. I can see it in your eyes. By the way, did you get my note to you? Did you get the Bob at the end of the thing? I did. Did you? <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the moment when I'm going to come to this time sequence again. And when I thought we cleared it up and then realized I'm going to just throw a monkey wrench at you again. But so, I, re- I, read, I read this and read it. I have another book that kind of explains it. But it's still, it's, it's words to me. I don't get that fear because I, I just can't see. I have a tough time seeing that happening, and I don't understand. You mean in real life? Yeah, and I don't even understand why it happens. Other than if I try to relate maybe back to Noah, the flood, is that what's happening here? The world is going to be destroyed, and then that's why, like, say, a new Jerusalem. Yeah. Out, and, uh, but it, it just kind of leaves me hanging a little bit as far as, I guess, the temptations that are going to be out there, and then the fear. And then God still expects you to hang on to the spiritual thing out here. Perseverance, endurance, we've been talking about that every... Okay, and that, and that, yes, but it just, I don't know, it just, it just and I can reread it again and reread it again. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, yep. It's words and it, and it so I, I don't know. Well, I'd like to think that some of the things that I've said have helped make this concrete, but I share the sympathy is the same. I mean, I, I don't think it's easy to read Revelation, and I think it leaves most of us, as we, I would think all of us, if anybody was sensible, it leaves us with uncertainties and questions because it's, it's so symbolic. It's, it's collapsing here and now with end times. That's not it. We're human. We're in time. And even though we're being asked to make judgments according to eternity, we're in time. So... So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I just think that's one of the problems that Revelation presents us with, and it's natural and understandable. And I mean, I'm trying to bring some sense to it so that we can relate to it and um, and try to do some justice to its principles. But I've been reading this, you know, the Antichrist and the Apocalypse, and an explanation of the 21 different plagues. But and it's good in that it, it does explain it back to the Old Testaments and where these. People were talking about it and explaining it and comparing it to what's happening now. Uh, so that's good at explaining explaining this a little bit better. Yeah, still. yeah. Um, I'm going to come to something that's going to. Um, sorry, Melody, you got a question. Things happen, 
they, I, I can't see well enough to read it, but um, they talk about those people who didn't repent or those people who didn't change. So I think that's the point of Revelation is to say, don't put this off because there will be a time when you can't put it off anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, no. That, it's, that brings it to that point, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess all the all the wickedness and all the punishments and all that—it's like it's even before you were judged, because you, the final judgment comes in chapter twenty-one, or twenty-two, whatever it is here. So it's like, wow. So I mean, all this stuff is being thrown down on top of you, and yet the judgment's later. So I, I, I guess I didn't quite. We're going to come back to this sequence problem again, and I want to—I want to try to speak to this. What I've described in terms of God's permission of evil, He allows evil to happen to us, and the evil that we're reading about in Revelation is on a cosmic scale. It's everywhere. Let's wait on this and see um, once again if hopefully some of this stuff will shed some light on it. But one, I mean, one of the beautiful things about Revelation, because it is on a cosmic scale, you can look at it in, in terms of the ancient epic myths we look at, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. But what's going on here is a cosmic order that's, um, that's at stake. Satan wants to get a hold of it. God's been fighting, so it's there. But um, anyway, it has that kind of cosmic dimension because, and think about um, Hopkins, the wind hover. Even at the beginning, he's talking about God as the creator of things. He allows things to happen, but he's in control of things. He's got that picture of that sailor dandling, you know, that, that this is God the Father allowing something like a shipwreck to occur where these nuns are going to be killed. God knows what's going on. This is not a stupid God. He's not... So he's never not answering. The, 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 the danger is, I think, sometimes, particularly in our, the modern world. The modern world is so utopian. We want everything now, and we want everything to be the way we want it. Father Flynn just jumps all over this, always, again and again and again. What he calls cheap graces, you know, that we make these half-hearted efforts to deal with things. But um, we live in a utopian world. We want comfort. We want security. I think those are the gravest temptations of our world peace and comfort and security. We want those. But I'm going to get to this. The cost of those, I'm going to try to unmask it in a minute. The cost of it for our culture is a real violence. I'll look at it in a minute. But if God's in control of the whole universe and, and there is a spiritual revolt, then we're not just talking about who was killed in Sacramento today or 20 people you know, um, who were killed by a collapse of a building. We're talking about things going on on a cosmic scale involving this battle between good and evil, and it's everywhere. And one of the dangers that I've been trying to suggest is it's easy for us to get put to sleep on that because we're so given to comfort. We, the, the, there's a Protestant element at work in us that if you're prosperous, if you obey the laws, if you, that is, if you're respectable, that's defining the Protestant world, respectability. You're saved. Everything's okay. It's an imputed, it's an imputed justice. It, you wear it. 
that, that allows you to continue doing whatever it is you're doing. It doesn't matter. The inward struggle is half put to sleep. You're saved. You're saved. You're among the saved. That is not our faith. <laughs> we, we, I mean, you're, you're touching on it, but we've got to face these ordeals again and again and again and again, and they're wearing and tiring, and will we endure? <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> will we hope? Yeah, come on, see, go. Every, yeah. that, gonna, you know, that can bring a situation in the world in which you may have trouble with water or with crops. People may die. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's such a far fetch. I think it's, it can happen. Yeah, it does. I mean, the people, and the, the people in Ukraine were going to happen. I was just going to say the wars in Ukraine. Yeah. Right. You know, you don't know any time something may trigger something yep. that can create a yep. Yeah, I'm glad because I was going to come to that later because I want to give you some figures that are sort of startling. But yes, it's not that it could happen. It is happening. It never, it never is not happening. One of the things I've been pushing is, are we, are we as Americans sufficiently aware of it or do we get comfortable? America's the most prosperous, I think, one of the most prosperous countries in the world. Does our prosperity put us to sleep? We, do we get so comfortable in our world, it's just, you know, security, wanting things the way we want, that we, that we, one of the, one of the um, phrases in the priest's homily the, is, no, it was the deacons. It was such a good homily. He said, we're responsible for everybody. That's going to be one of the words you're going to hear from Father Zosim and Brothers Karamazov to the uh, monks. If you don't go into the world believing that you're the worst of the worst, that you're not a sinner, that you're better than everybody, you'll not be able to bear each other's sins because you'll be above them. We are responsible for everybody in the world. There are brothers, we're children. How much of us feel that in America? And I don't want to get into this fight right now. The utopian view, the Marxist utopian view, is if we'll only get rid of the system, these inequalities and this class distinction, we'll have a heaven on earth. There's the other prophet, the other side. We've got all these problems in America. If we could only do this, and we know it's not gonna... Um, anyway, let me stop there, okay? I wanna, cause I wanna, I wanna get through Revelation. Go, cool, yeah. I have a question about the number seven. Because we talk about the number seven as being symbolic of uh, perfection or completion. The beast comes out of the sea and yet he has seven heads. Is that an imitation of God's perfection? Yeah, Mike, I, I, I'm, I mean, exactly. It's not just, it's seven heads and seven. Ten yeah. The, the, the numbers line up, but, um, but I've tried suggesting in the way I presented it, and I'm going to do it tonight, I'll go over it again. Um, let me wait. Because I'm going to come to this, because I want to underline the beast. But hold on, if I could, go ahead. I have another question uh, on this too. I was a little um, puzzled by something that was written in here that says everybody was, um, you know, dumb except for the. Everybody was what? Um, 
you know, everybody went to hell, or I don't remember exactly the terminology, but they were like damned, except for the people who were written in the book from the beginning. And that bothered me because that means that <laughs> yes. it's been written since the beginning, it means that there is no really free choice for the new. Oh, you would do this. <laughs> that was to bring it up because I don't know if you have a different view about it. Oh, I, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to hear that. Oh, I just thought it did. You, you just touched on one of the most perplexing. There also talks in there about, in one of the letters, it talks about how people's names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, and yet they're not there anymore, which means they were going to heaven, and then they did something where their name got erased, which means it was there. Yeah. So they have a choice somewhere in there. Yeah. Here, let me just, oh boy. <laughs> What? I just have a little question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. You and Eve. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, it's just too. You're you're so good to bring it up. I'm going to dodge it here, and I don't like doing that. Um, I'm not aware of anything I read in in Revelation that said that there were um, names written that were predestined to death or damnation. Um, but. And I, you may correct me on that. Wait on that, will you? Will you? It's a, it's a, because it, for me, it raises the specter of Calvin, and um, that whole left wing of the Protestant world that believes that our, um, our end was predestined, and that was a, that was a major doctrine, a dogma for Calvinists. It still is, predestination, saved or damned, um, so that it questions free will. That and the, the, the. the the Calvinists would say, it's irresistible, you can't get over it. So even if you're tempted to sin, if you're among the predestined to heaven, something will help you. You can't, grace is irresistible. One of the reasons we're going to read Moby Dick is that Melville is going to be dealing with that head on. It's one of the reasons I want to read it with you guys. Um, but Heather, go ahead. You all know we have a class still ahead of us. All right. This is class. <laughs> all right, come on. It's chapter 13, verse 8. Go read it. Go ahead. Um, it says here, let's see, the 7 and 8. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority, let's talk about the first beast. It's given authority over every tribe and people and language and nations, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. Yeah. Now, put just for, to help clarify this before we go on, paraphrase that in your own words. What's being said there? Get out of the book for a second and just paraphrase it. So there, to me, it means that there are some people who are called from the beginning of time who are... Who are it's not predestination. Uh, um, so, <laughs> Here, let me. God, okay, so God is outside of time. So even if God from the beginning knows all that will happen, so for God, everything is happening, beginning, middle, end. Everything is happening sort of simultaneously because he is outside of linear time. So from the beginning, he knows who's going to be saved and who's going to be damned. But we don't. So that's where we, 
you have to be careful because it's not predestination. He just knows because he's outside of time. We don't know because we are in time, so we still have choices to make things to do. Every day we have to choose. But he knows. It's not a determination. He's not determining it. He's not determining it. He just knows it because he knows all things and all time all over. Which is hard for us, like you said, because we're in time. That's hard for us to understand knowing all of time at the same time. Yeah. I'm so glad we've done Boethius because you remember this is this is the argument that ends Boethius where knowing the, the question is whether knowing something predetermines any ar- argument. Let me just add a qualification and leave it there if I can now because it's it's going to be I'm not sure that we can answer that question but let me offer what for me is a problem the way you presented it. I personally have trouble thinking that God knows wait first of all he knows everything and he does he is outside of time whether he knows who's going to be damned or salvation or saved is a problem for me i just you know i have trouble saying that because i believe so much in free will um, and god's working with it and allowing things to happen to test us what i hear him saying there in that passage is that god authorized evil he allowed it to happen. He gave authority to these people. He, so, and Christ said that to Caesar. You don't have any authority that you didn't get from God. God gives Caesar his authority, even if he abuses it. So there's no authority in the world that doesn't ultimately come from him. So in some sense, he allows evil to exist in the world. Does that mean he's an evil God? No, it doesn't. But it raises certain questions for me. One is, I have no question that he gives permission for evil for the reasons to try us, to test us, to punish us, because we think we're so good we don't need God. But what, so just a question on my side, I can't, you know, I don't want to get into a debate here, but it's, it's a serious question for me whether, with all of his foreknowledge, he sees who's going to be damned and um, who's not. What's clear there, what I can say authoritatively, just reading it, is it's clear there that, that from the beginning he allow, he's given certain people graces that sets them apart. And let me just go back. So we know, um, who is it? Um, um, Dominic. His mother had a vision. We, we know from prophecy that some mothers have visions or some people have visions about the child that's going to be born. I was sort of laughing, but half being serious when I said any child that's born on the floor is, you know, I mean, to have a sense of humor about that. I, who knows what God is? But we do know that some, that some saints were elected before time. I don't know how to put that. But clearly God gave somebody, some of them, something that put them among the saints. From the very beginning of their lives, their lives are directed to God. And everything they do illustrates that. So with and I'm I'm trying to defend this really strongly right now because I I I to me the Calvinistic doctrine that some people are predestined to damnation is one of the most inhuman dogmas I can imagine that that God loving free will as much as He does would have damned people without their ever having made a choice in their life to me is one of the most hideous dogmas in the history of man 
It, it, it so flies in the face of free will, but that he would have given some people the grace to live their lives and do, and, and I think even the good ones were tempted. It's not like they you know, had a free pass. So I think I'm doing justice to that passage without overstepping the own, my limits, my questions about these things. Because I, I have trouble myself saying he knows in advance who's going to be damned or not. That's just a tough one. Um, particularly somebody like Judas. You know? Let's leave this because it is such a naughty question. But I, but I think I can say fairly just in responding to that passage, we can say that God um, has selected some to be saintly in advance. Um, so he's not taking away their wills entirely. I mean, it's not, and he's certainly not damning them, which to me is a horrible thing. I can't, I can't see our God. But they damn themselves, basically. Yeah. They're, I mean, it's free will, so they're damning themselves. And I, I, I mean, personally, I think he knows, you know, he knew Judas was never going to change. Judas, I mean, they tried, you know, I'm sure Mary probably talked to Judas and said, please don't do this. But he chose it. That was his will. Yeah. And God probably knew, I mean, he's never going to change. He's going to be, you know. We, we had this very young priest here one time. He came to one of our Bible studies. He conducted that night, and he says, "Who told you that Judas went to hell?" And we all assumed that Judas went to hell because he betrayed God. Yeah, we have. But we no, said no, sure. his question was, "How do you know he went to hell?" Maybe he asked for forgiveness before he hung himself. I don't the evidence is all in that direction. You can say that, but but remember, just the. I mean, I I want to. Right. The only way that that would be possible Here's the problem. Here, if I can, I want to cut this short because we're we're in um, what we're asked. The way we're asked to stand by God is do not take God's name in vain. That doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't speak for God. Um, we know we we our belief is our church is Christ. So for anybody to walk into a church and not like a priest in some ways is missing the point. It doesn't matter whether we like the, the sacraments, the nature of the church is not going to change when there are bad people doing things that they do. All the evidence points to his being damned. That's the way it looks. For anybody to say, you know, speaking for God, that's a, that's a questionable thing. When, you, when you're getting close, so for me, Mary, um, I, I find it hard to say God knew in advance that Judas was going to do this. He, he, he may have. I I find myself on tenuous ground making that as an authoritative statement. The likelihood, yeah, and it may just be a weakness on my own part, but I just think we're asked to tread very carefully with respect to statements like that. I'm not, I, I don't feel like I misstepping, you know, with the passage that Heather wrote, because just reading it literally says God, you know, but I don't remember anything in Revelation saying people were predestined to damnation. That's a very different thing. Let's stop. I want to try to get through Revelation. All the questions you guys are raising and the energy and excitement behind it is great. It's wearing me out. I'm, I'm getting too old for this stuff. God. There is a class on um, the apocalypse. Deacon Petzl was doing it. 
anybody wants to go and get it. Well, you guys should be primed for it. Monday nights. Monday nights. It starts February 6th. Better not be on Tuesday nights. Can we? <laughs> no. <laughs> the answer is no. Yes, stop. <laughs> Bob, to try to... No, you, you stop. Um, where did this come from? Is this, is, 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 this, is this the result of three weeks' work on Revelation where we suddenly let the cap off? I don't, here. Um, it's important to remember from end times, these things have already happened, they're going to continue to happen. So you don't have to wait for World War III or World War II. You can go to Rome and the war's there, or Egypt, or all of them. Because in, according to this, that beast has been there, for, in fact, it's going to be one of the, hold on if you can. He's been there forever. Remember, Satan was there in the beginning because that image of him tempting Eve and then God speaking to him about, you know, you will beat her foot and Satan was there. He always has been there. So the wars the, and the major cities that have emerged, those have happened in the past, they're happening now, they will happen yeah. 50 years from now. We don't know, but we're, we're asked to know that end times are real and to be on guard, to not take them for granted. Um, anyway, let's hear quick start. I want to start. Two quick things. <laughs> God, two quick things. Three quick things as background again. One is, it's absolutely crucial that everybody know this. Um, you know that in 330, Constantine moved the empire from Rome to um, Byzantium. And he established the city Constantinople. That became the seat of empire. You, you know if you didn't know it before, when we read Boethius, Boethius got, this is what, 7th century, Boethius um, was accused because of intrigues between Rome and Constantinople. A Roman world, a Greek world. So the Roman and Greek conflicts, political conflicts, have been with us from the beginning. When the seat of empire moved east, it immediately became identified with the Greek world. So the problem with the, um, what's the filioque? The problem with the filioque is not just theological, it's, it's also got political implications to it. When, when he moved the seat of empire to the east, the east took on powers of empire, okay? And Rome went into a long collapse. In, I think it was 10, 11th, 1454, I can't remember the date, I had it somewhere in my notes. Islam, which had been on the march for centuries before that, 
and had um, taken control of a good part of the southern um, coast of Europe and the northern coast of Africa, a lot of Spain. It attacked Constantinople and defeated it, brought down that city. Most historians take the collapse of Constantinople as the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modernity. Now underscore that. Hold on to that notion. The defeat of Constantinople brought to an end the Holy Roman Empire. It had already weakened in Rome. Rome didn't have the power it did. And, and the East was in a state of decay. So when Islam finally, because it, had been, it laid siege to Constantinople, Google it, it laid siege to Constantinople for ages, finally brings it down. Now think about the implications of that. Rome is the seat of empire. Byzantium, or Constantinople is now. Islam defeats it. That means Islamic power is tremendously amplified, increased, okay? That's also, so historian, most historians see that as the, the end of the Middle Ages, the collapse of the Christian Middle Ages as we know, and the beginning of modernity. What follows from that is the beginning of what we know today as the secular atheistic state. I'll say it again. It's the beginning of the modern secular atheistic state. God's no longer in the picture. We're not in a Christian worldview. The state takes on a different dimension. Okay? You know in the 18th century, America breaks from England and the principles of our American founding are both Christian, all men are created, the Declaration of Independence, all men have a nature, that's in the Declaration, and nature's God. So America was founded with the sense that there was a nature to man, and that we were under God. But it's not a Catholic understanding, it's a somewhat theistic, it's God is there and he's in nature. Our founding was a combination of Christian principles, all men are created equal, all men have rights, there's an inherent dignity in all people, that's fundamental to our constitution. And combined with that were the um, um, Oh God, my mind, it's going, let you guys do this. Um, social contract theorist. Social contract theorist. You've heard me talk about that before. Locke, 17th century. Or sorry, sorry, Hobbes, 17th century. Locke is in the 18th century. Rousseau is in the 18th century. All of them had this theory that we had to create a social system um, that would protect our, um, our human nature. Um, the, um, Hobbes' fundamental principle was all men are, exist in a state of war. You can write this down. All men exist in a state of war by nature. We're ruled by pride and envy. If we're left to ourselves in a state of nature, we will kill each other. They were predatory. That's our nature. Okay? That's the basis of the social contract theory. That's the basis of the mod modern world. Machiavelli, Renaissance, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau. Machiavelli, the ends justify the means. You know, if, if, you're, if you're trying to uphold the good of the state and it means you have to kill some individuals to do that, it's justified. That's Machiavelli. Hobbes, we all live in a state of pride, 
fear, those are the governing motives. If we don't create laws, we'll kill, kill each other. So we create what's called social contract. Rousseau added his name to it, but from a different position. Rousseau said, if, um, um, we all want freedom, but we all exist in um, chained. We all exist in change. We've got to create laws to make equality possible. So the basis of the modern world is secular from those men. Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau. Okay? You might even go on to add Kant, but I'd, those four men. Now, if you look at what's happening in America today, you'll see that we're, we are losing touch with our Christian foundations and moving more in the direction of those Enlightenment thinkers. Machiavelli, Hobbes, Rousseau, Locke. Is that clear? And what we're seeing is horrible. We are no longer a Christian world. A Catholic cannot look for help from his culture because he won't find any help. The dominating principles of our culture are Enlightenment. Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau. So we moved into a secular state. Our Christian roots are weakening and we're seeing an increase in violence because we no longer have the support of a Christian faith or a God. I just, I want that to be clear. Bob and Olivia, to, if you can... But, um, we're going to talk about the, um, the bulls in a second. Remember these lines from the um, Tate poem that we read a week ago, okay? Remember he says that there's this place, and at the center of this place, it's hell, there's this cross. So the cross d defines everything, but those who have turned away from it have turned into fiends. So the mere fact of denying Christ's divinity turns people into fiends. Hold on to that, just for a second, okay? Remember, there's a place some in no, I cannot see, or I came long ago, flame burst out of that secret pit. And he describes those who turned away from it have turned into fiendish creatures. That once you deny Christ or the God and you enter that space, whatever bad you did gets revealed for what it is. It's fiendish. Just hold on to that, okay? Um, now to go to Bob's question and Olivia's comment, I want to read you some figures. Um, these are taken from a former colleague of mine who's a physicist, biologist, George Stanch, who has a blog online. He says this, he has this to say about modern man and what makes him different from modern man of every age. Because remember, mo every age has its modern man. At that age, that, that person's modern. Here are some figures to just try to flesh out, you know, what we were talking about a while ago, that what's happening is on a cosmic scale. It inf streams, water, climate, the evil men do it. It doesn't matter, okay? Um, in the beginning of the modern worlds, nation-states became the new gods. So when we turn from a Christian worldview to the modern world, the, the national state, the secular state, assumed totalitarian powers. 
If you go against the state today, what happens? Okay? Um, 90% of the espionage movies are about corruption in government where people get betrayed, killed, you know, constantly. They lose their jobs, they lose their families. Nation states became the new gods, far more demanding and severe than the church had ever been. Unending conflict occurred as the new gods split up the world into regions of economic and political interests. Under an international political system that was anarchic, since no supernatural authority existed to enforce rules. What we learned towards the end, I'm not sure that we'll be able to cover it in the readings now, um, we, we had that description where Babylon was defeated, remember? And John describes the angel saying that um, Rome, Babylon, was the center of, was the image of the tendency to focus powers in that one beast. So they're all collected in a, in a city, a major city like Rome or Babylon. And that the people who um, supported the beast began to turn away from it. So cities began to fight against each other. They began to fight against Rome. What's going to happen with America and its contest with any of its other cities? What's happening with Russia? When a major city acquires power, most other nations are subordinate to it, but at some point they will rise up. Historically, that's happened again and again. It should be no surprise. So it's happened before. It's happening now with Russia. Um, it'll happen 50 years from now. Centers of power dominate people. Um, the people living under those powers don't have the courage to stand up against them because if they do, they know they put their lives at risk. And then nations will go against nations. That's the modern world. That's our world. Um, these countries go at it because there's no, there's no longer any supernatural authority existing to enforce it. Can a supernatural, can a supernatural Sorry, supranational power ever exist to take control of the conflicts between nations? I'm going to say no. We've got evidence of it where? In Babel. Every attempt to have some world power take control only makes that power worse. There is no supranational authority. Each nation-state desired to flourish economically to possess the military power to ensure its self-preservation. As a result, the international political system was unstable, as became obvious in the 20th century with World War I and II. In addition, every attempt to return humanity to the Garden of Eden ended in a disaster. Every socialistic effort to, re to make an Edenic state a, an earthly paradise in, in socialism became absolutely despotic. It's another form of totality. If in a, in a socialistic world, when the government controls the means of um, publication, or um, where will there arise um, a countering voice, a challenging voice, a contesting voice? If the government owns anything, you can't have one. There can't be a freedom of the press. There can't be an oppositional power because the government owns everything. People get put to sleep. They may economically be more comfortable, but spiritually, morally, how does that go? And in support of this conclusion, he, uh, Stanchu offers the following comment along with numbers. Bob, this is answering you. A partial conserve, this is, think about this, we're, because we're talking about these catastrophes in Revelation, natural 
human wars, all of it. A partial conservative catalog of the political murders of the 20th century is mind-boggling, unbelievable, but sadly undeniable. Deaths. World War I, 9,700,000 deaths. Russian Revolution, Civil War, 9 million deaths. Forced collectivization, 3 million. Ukraine peasants, Russian gulag, a million. Political prisoners, Spanish Civil War, 1,200,000. World War II, 51 million. Nazi death camps, 6 million. Jews, 6,000 Slavs, 600, no, sorry, 6 million Slavs, gypsies, political prisoners. Japanese rape, Nanking, 300,000. Allied bombing of Hamburg, Berlin, Cologne, Dresden, 500,000. German citizens, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, 140,000. Vietnam War, 5 million. Chinese Great Leap Forward, 30 million. This is the modern world. Tell me that we're a more civilization than we were in the 15th century under a different world order. The medieval was theocratic under God. The modern world is humanistic. It's man-centered. It's human-centric. Look at the results. We and, and oh, here, sorry, sorry, I'm not finished. That statue. I would supply what I. This statue doesn't mention this. I would supply what I take to be a, a serious omission to the shocking numbers of this list. Since the 1970s, we couldn't be more modern. Over a billion and a half abortions have been formed worldwide. Over 50 million in the United States alone, numbers roughly equal to the numbers of deaths in our first two world wars. We are implicated, we, America. We are the leading country in the world. We are implicated in the worst holocaust in history. If we look at what happened with Germany and the Jews, and we don't even look at the holocaust in our backyard. Yet we explain it away the way we did slavery. So when we're talking about the disasters in Revelation and how vast they are, we don't need to go back because this is recurring. The numbers I've given you, Rome in its conquests or Egypt or Babylon, go where you will. But these are our figures and we think of ourselves as educated. And I'm going to make this statement again because it's so distressing to me. One of the problems in our modern world is that we think we're so educated that we're better than people in the past. This is our record. We, we think of ourselves as being the most educated, and because we're educated, we're better. These, this is our record. This is under our watch. So what Revelation is talking about has always been there. It's here now. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Or our uh, 
way to survive. Not, but I don't think things have really changed from day one. I'm going to agree and disagree. No, I'm going to agree and disagree in a second, but go ahead, Alexis, go ahead. a question. Let me just, I mean, I want to agree, but see if I can qualify this some. The Christian Middle Ages were Christian, so people lived under a different ethos. Yeah, well, um, um, have, did they... Yeah. Um, wait, let me just agree in one respect. Man has never not been fallen or not had to struggle against his own wickedness. So I hope what I'm saying um, um, goes against that because there's not a... I've read history and I, I know the history from the inside, from the literature. Iliad is, is a story about people getting killed <laughs> right and left. So I'm, I'm not trying to romanticize something here. Our wickedness, our weaknesses have always been with us. What I am suggesting pretty strongly is that in the Christian Middle Ages, there was an ethos that gave people support for being good. And that support made a difference. Now, there's a couple of variables. Just hold on. Let me have a minute here. There's a couple of variables here. That was not the modern world. It was the Christian world. It was theocentric, God-centered. So people lived much more closely to God and much more closely to nature. Did that prevent them absolutely from committing evil? No, evil exists always. But on a scale, if you take a family that, that holds beliefs to the true faith, what we believe is true, and those people who simply disregard it, 
it should be no surprise that one family will tend to be a little bit healthier than another. Because the one of them will produce violence, and for what reason will you do things? If, if you're the center of your life, and you've been encouraged to believe that nothing more is important than you, and you grew up that way, you're going to have problems. The modern world is human-centric, it's man-centric, it's anthropocentric. Middle Ages was theocentric, God-centered. Ours is anthropocentric, it's man-centered, with all of the problems that comes from that. Now, add to that this fact, and we can't, you know, you can't hypothesize if only, a, it's, it was a different age, but it was Christian. And the presumption is Christianity would make a difference for people who live it, even though we're going to fail. But one of the differences is when you, when you cut off from your Christian roots and make the state absolute in its powers with the machinery of the state, then the capacity of the state to do harm is greater than the capacity that any of the minor kings or lords would have had in the Christian Middle Ages. Because now you're not talking about King Arthur in England, you know, fighting against lords. You're talking about Hitler or Mussolini gathering. So Hitler could, this is stunning. After the First World War, Hitler is already preparing for a war, and the West goes to sleep on it. He's in violation of every, this is Nazi Germany. He's in violation of every one of his treaties. The, the argument then was, we don't want to go to war again. We just came out of a war. If they had gone to Churchill was the only one standing up and saying, we've got to go. If we had gone to war then, we would have lost some thousands of men. We lost millions. Um, when, you, when you look at the absolute powers of a state and the power of a state to marshal those powers, so Russia now is threatening nuclear, making threats about nuclear stuff in its war, so you're, and, or weapons of mass destruction. What's going on in the modern world under science is enormously, radically different from what went on in the Middle Ages because science, science would have been under control if there's no God to control it. Who's to say what a scientist can do? And wait, there's two things that I didn't add to that, but you can add to them. I'm talking about the collapse of Constantinople. That's just a, a mark, you know, historians. The two major changes that, that have marked us in the modern world is Copernicus, because he discovered that the earth wasn't the center of things, or the sun wasn't, and suddenly it gave a different understanding of man, our, our very nature, and we're already turning away from God. So our understanding of our self-understanding radically changes. That's one. The second is the Reformation. And in the Reformation, two views enter the our view of ourselves that radically changed the view of man in the Middle Ages. That man is predestined to damnation, some men, that's Calvin, and the inefficacy of good works. That what we do doesn't matter. So these very, and the modern world, that man is just an atom in space, that's the scientific worldview. So radical changes take place in the modern world that changes the way we see ourselves, the way we see each other. So we can't ignore the, the changes between what was once a Christian Middle Ages and what is now a modern secular state because they're radically different understandings of man. They lead to men treating themselves very differently even with our weaknesses. So I don't want to romantically gloss over and act like Christians are just good because they're, because that isn't so. But what I am maintaining is the beliefs by which you live your life matter. If you grow up in Soviet Russia, 
you're going to be of a very different kind of character. If you're in the army, you're going to be far more willing to do whatever anybody tells you, even if it means you take the life of somebody, than if you grow up in the West. Even though I'm arguing the West is losing it. What I'm trying to, and I want to get off this, what I'm suggesting now is that what we're seeing in Revelation wasn't just confined to the past. We, we, we can go back to the beginning and see it. We can see it in all of history. We're staring it in the face in our age, I'm suggesting, and not even seeing it. So one of the reasons I'm pushing as hard as I am on Revelation, read this and take it seriously. And I'm trying to give evidence to show lots of alarming things are happening right here that, that simply flesh out what we're reading in abstract language. Sorry? Oh. Bob, did you have something? Whatever you want to make the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And she was talking about abortions, abortions happened, but everybody understood those as bad. Yeah. Whereas now we talk about good. Right. Well, just in my lifetime, there were people who did things that, but they were considered bad ones, bad ones. Where now it's, it's almost more of a make fun of you if you still hold to the belief of this is what you should be doing. Yeah, both of you are making a really good point, and just to underscore it, in a Marxist view, which is utopian, if we get rid of these things, we'll create a um, heaven and earth, basically. So, in the modern, so one of the fundamental principles of the Middle Ages was each person is responsible for himself if he does something wrong. So if they did something wrong, even if they did it, they carried around a guilt because they knew it was wrong. Today, we're losing a sense that there's a wrong, and if we have it, it's usually the state or the system. It's, just, it's systemic. So if a guy commits a murder, there's a tendency on the part of a lot of judge to put him back out on the streets because it's not his fault. It's the product of his environment or his parents. So the very way we look at human being encourages violence. So my suggestion is, if there's already a weakness in us, and it was there in the Middle Ages, and it's here now, we're living in beliefs which in some ways tend to encourage it instead of inhibiting it to say there's something wrong. We're becoming more lawless in our country, not less. I tried giving figures. I mean, the figures are staggering. Um, sorry? Could be a Papa Wick. Here, I want, yeah. I don't. The way it's going, it, it, it could be tomorrow. <laughs> See, I think we're supposed to live that way every age. Christ said that. I mean, we don't know that, you know, you don't... We, we're supposed to live as if it could be tomorrow without, without allowing it to paralyze us. We have to go on about what we're doing, keep living, doing what we do. But we don't know the end times. They could be. All I'm doing is saying, when we read Revelation, it may all seem symbolic, but it's always around us. And I think in America, we do a lot to close ourselves off. We're so secure. We um, Anyway, here, let me go quick. I want to cover some things before we... This is a quick summary of what happens after the two beasts. Now, hold on, because I know, Bob, if this doesn't answer, it raises a question, but the first beast, I think, represents all the material um, 
idolatrous forces in the world that are generally gathered in a city, Rome, Babylon. But they're, they're everywhere. They're pervasive. Because the tendency is to turn from God towards whatever it is that gives you power so that you can do whatever you want to do. That was true in the Christian Middle Ages. It's never not been true. But the first beast is, is it resembles the Satan as he's described, but it's slightly different. But he has his powers and he gets his authority from Satan. That's got to be... So the, the modern city cut off from God entirely gives us an image of that beast. Okay. Remember, we've been dealing with the city as one of our important things from the beginning. Enoch is the founder of the very first city. That's an attempt to live without God. The city is, I've said this before, the city's paradoxical. It shows how great man is, that we can, cre we can create a world of our own. It's stupendous what we can do. But it also shows in our efforts to be self-sufficient, we do great things. But we do the most horrible things in the world in the name of what we're doing as well, because we've cut off from God. So the city has always been a major focus of attention for us. It is here. The first beast, I think, represents that kind of power in the world. This usually is sent Babylon, Egypt, whatever it is. The second beast, remember, wait, and so the first beast comes out of the sea. The sea is indefinite. It, it's, this has been true again. It's indefinite. It can take lots of forms. That's one of the images, symbolic images of the sea. So the beast that comes out of there can take indefinite forms. It's a way of saying, be careful. The second beast comes from the land. The land is more definite. It's more limited. It defines itself in terms of the first beast. That's the way it's presented. These are the prophets who are the ones who support the state, who talk about its great powers, who do everything they can to convince people that they should give themselves to the state. So both beasts are parodies of Christ and the prophets. The first beast is the parody of the New Jerusalem. It's an inverse image. It's got all the semblances, the seven, it, it's because it, it presents itself as being complete, but it's a parody. It's a reverse image. So it's presented exactly as having this. Why would people adore it? Why would they give their lives for it otherwise? The second, the second beast is that body of prophets who do everything they can to persuade the people that they work in their best interest when they serve the state, the first beef. And they do these wonderful things like false prophets of old did. That's where we were when we left off. I didn't, we could name, we could name <laughs> prophets. I'm, without naming the, I'm going to go back. The 19th century, the 19th century produced the greatest number of rationalists presenting their theories in terms of science that the world has ever known. Darwin, Marx, Freud, Feuerbach. I hesitate to do that, but, and it's from those theorists, rationalists, who denied God, um, who gave rise to the descendants who are working out of them, theorizing as they are today. Okay? Now here's John. This is John. This is the first letter of John. The first letter of John. John, first letter of John, 
Um, verse 4. Beloved, do not trust every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they belong to God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. What is Revelation telling us? This is how you can know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ in the flesh belongs to God. And every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus does not belong to God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that, as you have heard, is to come, but in fact is already in the world. You belong to God. He chose you, you know. Okay. The Antichrist is anybody who, divide, who denies Christ's divinity, who will turn all of their devotion, all of their powers to whatever it is they think will serve their interests. So, after the two beasts, we get the Lamb of God on Mount Zion, and he speaks with, this is interesting, he speaks, we're not going to finish. God, what to do? Um, he speaks with a voice that's never been heard before. And his voice is described like a song that's never been heard before. That's stunning. Um, this is 14. This voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps, and they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. By the way, the 24 elders are the 24 books of the Bible. That's traditional Catholic understanding. To get to the, these are the fathers of the church. They treated a collection of, um, I can't remember if it was the wisdom books or the, as one. So that the num traditionally the number of the books was 24. So that when Dante showed the, the Beatrician pageant, if you remember, it was the four beasts and the 24 elders. John's presented that way here. Um, so I, I think it's the four gospel writers and the Bible. Um, um, they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves for women, for they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb. He goes on. This is going to precede the battle with um, Babylon and, and, and its overthrow. But once again, it's showing that there are some people who from the beginning live saintly lives. That's just a fact. There are some people from an early age who want to follow Christ. They do. There are people like that. Um, Another angel comes up and says, Babylon is fallen. She made all drink wine of her passion. Anybody worshiping the beast marked on the forehead will drink wine of wrath. So the wrath that's being described here is in terms of wine. Okay. Um, then the, we see John sees the, the Son of Man on a cloud, reaping harvest, cutting the, the grapes. And then a portent comes with the seven angels, who, who bring the bowls and pour them the wrath of God all over the world. I, I don't want to go through that, but just to touch on it, in 16, um, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go pour out on the wrath the seven bowls of the wrath of, sorry, pour out on the earth the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured his bowl in the earth and foul and evil sores came. Every one of the angels pours um, from these bowls and it becomes blood or the wrath of God. Um, the fourth poured his bowl in the sun. It was allowed scorched men with fire. 
fist poured his bowl on the throne of the beast. His kingdom was in darkness. Men nod their tongues. Six poured his bowl on the great river Euphrates. It was the center of civilization. It goes on and on, and it produces an Armageddon, uh, this awful battle. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air, and a great voice came, but the temple, but up, came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Flashes of lightning, thunder, the great city was split. Babylon falls. Hold on for a second, because I want to take a second with this. What are these bowls? And the words, it is done, recall what? Christ on the cross. So once again, we're in, I mean, we're being given a, um, a final ends vision, but it's in, verbally, it's connecting us to the cross. It's done. What are these bowls? We've talked about seals. We've talked about trumpets. The final punishment takes the form of bowls pouring the wrath of God, and occasionally it's likened to a wine. Any thoughts? In the homework, we're always hearing about the, in the Iliad, the, the Greek soldiers mixing their wine in bowls. The mixing of the wine in bowls. I always puzzled me because I didn't, I didn't quite understand what that mixing wine was. But they weren't they not drinking from bowls? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a vessel for drinking. It's being poured out now. Yeah. And with a violence. I mean, you're not enjoying wine the way we do after dinner. Sometimes too much. But what's the Old Testament too? That they they brought bowls of blood in from the sacrifice to the altar. So I guess that's connect those two, Bob. Can you? What you are? are yeah, what you and Mike are talking about. Can you connect them? I don't know, but it, but it is it's part of the sacrifice of the altar to God. So it's blood. Sorry. Oh, right. So why is it violent here? Well, it's pouring the wrath of God out on people, and the effect of that is, does that? I mean, destructive. This is the wrath of God. So we there have been seals, there have been trumpets, now it's bowls. Say. Is it God's judgment on the evil of the world? Yeah, but why bowls? And what's the con- is there a connection with wine? Bowls of wine? Is it something that we view as a good but is actually not? We're calling what is evil good. And like it's, we're doing things, seeking things that we think are good, but they're actually raining destruction on ourselves. Pursuing the wrong. What happens when you reject Christ as the Savior? What happens when you reject, if you live, what happens when you reject the divinity of Christ in your life for any of us? Well, generally, you're, you're on a bad path. You're on the wrong path, but it may be enjoyable and all that, but you're on the wrong path. It's just like they're talking about Babylon. Uh, and uh, the horse and whatever and all that stuff. And, and that was the other seven hills in Rome, I guess it was. It was the, had all these destructive yeah. habits there, but everybody yep. was having fun. You lose your compass, you call light darkness and darkness light, and yeah, you, you don't know the truth, the truth is not in you. Well, not only that, you're rejecting it. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that in some way, go ahead, sorry. Go. Well, it seems to me like if 
becomes the blood of Christ. And you've rejected it now. And it is the salvation of the world. Then instead of it being the blood of redemption, it becomes the blood of punishment. Yep. Yep. Okay. We see, we've seen this right on. You know, one of the images of light in the Middle East, Christian Middle Ages is that once you, if you reject the light of God, that light turns into a fire. So take, and it's really, this is the third source of, I mean, it's a bull, and so often like, you know, the, the, the wine of the passion of the whore, you know, all that they lived for in the absence of God so you could do whatever you did. But if you, re, if you consciously reject the divinity of Christ, the blood that he offered us for our lives, that blood, that's why I read that passage from Tate, that blood makes us fiendish. Whatever bad we do gets uncovered to show at its depths how violent it is. Because on the surface it can seem like nothing. God? But if you live that, if that begins, you know, that's a principle of your life, what can't you do? So, for, I mean, I love that Tate poem that, that it's, it's startling if you, if you reject the blood. That, I mean, that, just reread that Tate poem. The, the men want nothing to do with death. They want nothing to do with blood. And we see what happens in the, in the, because if you reject that, what is, what is it you can't do in life? And how much of what you do involves a, a rejection of God and the violent implications of that, whether you know it or not, you may have no notion of it. But it'll play out. So it seems to me, at least as I read this, that that it's, it's interesting that the last image of this motion out from God, from seals to trumpets to bulls, moves us in the direction of something closer to the Eucharist, to wine and the blood, the blood. He doesn't get explicit about it. It's all symbolic. But the connections there seem to me amazing. Go ahead, Alex. Would seals represent the law, trumpets the prophets, and then blood is the fulfillment of Wait, say that again. So if the seals, old, say Old Testament, you've got to make something. <laughs> say it again. Seals are Old Testament. Edicts with authority, right? The law. Okay. Trumpets are the prophets who speak for God, right? I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to be careful right now. And then the bowls are the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which is... In Christ's blood. Yes. Yes. So we've got the condemnation of the law, the prophets, and then the fulfillment. I don't know if it's a condemnation. Well, it's there. Wait, because God doesn't condemn the law. It comes from him. No, no. If when people it, reject these three things, yeah. these three things will yes. come back to you. Because all of them are inherent in God and Christ. Christ. He didn't come to do away with the law. came to fulfill it. So all of them are essential to what happens. What do you think? I think that's really good. <laughs> oh, oh God! I'm going to charge admission next time. <laughs> what to do with some of you? You can, you can write an article. No, you can. I've got my hands full writing. Not only do I have my hands full writing, I have my hands full with you guys. God. would not show that you were doing very much. This shows that we're here and we're thinking. <laughs> I 
I hope you know I'm having fun with you guys. We couldn't do this without each other. Um, um, I was convinced that we would get on time, and I wanted to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna let. I'm. I'm just gonna pass on this and let you because I want to. I don't want to. I'd like to take a break to hold us to. So let me just read the city. Just the verse, because I think it's extraordinary. And then go to the end. So rather than taking time to flesh out some of the things, because I think we've got to the essentials, so that when you hear readings from now from Revelation, or when you go back and read it, you should have some help now in getting through it, yeah? So go to 21. This is towards the end, and then I'm going to read the end and let it go, okay? Okay, are you ready? 21. So this is after the collapse of um, Babylon that um, God, Christ, has um, put Satan in the bottomless pit for a, a, a millennium, giving rise to the millennium view. Are we in that thousand years? Where are we? And you know that um, he will be released for the final war and the judgment that will come, the final judgment on everybody. That's in, at the end of 20. 21. So after this second death, now that the devil and all those who have supported them are sent to hell, the bottomless pit, this fire. After that, we get this. And Bob, I'm not going to... Here, here. I'm, actually, I've got to take a minute with this. I'm sorry. It's going to take a few minutes. I'm sorry. We've talked about sequence. It's been really important and hard. Yeah. I want to take a minute with this before I read the end. I've got to do it because I'm with Bob and his questions here because I think they're good questions. Um, when we get to that section, um, we're given a description of a woman bearing a child. That's Mary, um, pretty clearly. And then a description of Satan, the devil, pursuing her and the child. The child's rescued, remember. So I want to take this up because it's a perfect example of the confusion that goes with sequence. Okay? We know that the devil felt immediately. There wasn't a time. The devil fell. Instant after his creation, he's gone. He's there in the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve. He tempts Eve. So he's always been there. Okay? And yet here, he's described as going after her, and then what follows is a war in heaven. Okay, then. So my question, I'm going to put it to you. <laughs> my question is, if the devil fell... The church understands, this is St. Thomas, I think he's right. The devil fell instantly. It didn't come, it just, he knew it, the fall. He was there in the beginning, he tempted Eve. We know that from scripture. So if he fell, how could he have fallen and there not have been a war then? Why is John describing this as he does here? Mary gives birth to Christ and the, and the devil comes into the scene pursuing her and Christ. So my question is, um, what's happening in terms of sequence? you have any thoughts on that? Because once again, it seems out of whack. No, I don't. Not right now. <laughs> Anybody? Alexis, this is another paper. Anybody, any thoughts on this? Well, this, 
maybe it's just a final attempt to still destroy God and make an attempt that he's still, I still want his position, I want that, so I'm going to let me make this even harder. We had, a, we had an image earlier in John's Revelation where he described a star falling from heaven and a third of heaven falling. And we're assuming or is that that's Satan and a third of the angels of heaven. I'm assuming the consequence of a war. They're forced out. And yet here we've got John describing Mary giving birth to Christ, the devil or the Satan pursuing, and then a war in heaven. I, That's St. Thomas, and I, I put, but... I have heard that some theologians, I don't know, have speculated that it was he would not serve because God revealed his plan about creating man out of matter, and he was so disgusted. And, and in fact, that his son, the second person of the Trinity, would take on that matter eventually that Satan was so disgusted that's when he rebelled and fell and perhaps that all happened in an instant but that would so the woman crowned with the sun is perhaps God's like plan revealed to him and then the immediate rejection war fall all that I don't know. maybe that's how he chose it too like you're saying let me let me just hold on just because it picks up um, I think it's something you were um, referring to last week. Milda's presentation is exactly that. And I want to add a gl gloss here. I don't want to go into this, but Milda's presentation, and by the way, it would have been timeless, not chronological time as we know it. So it would have been in that timeless world. But his presentation is exactly that. That um, except the, the fault, one of the faults with Milton, one of the faults, is that there's no, there's no way how to put this? Two things. There's two problems among others with Milton. One of them is there's an Aryan quality to Milton, and you'd have to read him closely to see it. But the other is um, the way Milton presents it is that um, the, Satan and the angels get wind that God has this plan to create man. But the interesting thing about Milton is that, um, and this is Johnson, who was one of the greatest early critic, Renaissance, critic of Milton, said, here's a problem, is that um, there's no way he could have done it because God's motive for creating man was to spite Satan, to show Satan that he, um, he wouldn't be outdone by him. To me, one of the awful things about Milton is he makes God a God of spite that that's his motive for doing it, which I don't believe in, and it's not our understanding. God did nothing except in love of good. And Milton plays with that in, a, in, in an unfortunate way. Um, that's Milton's reading of um, the scripture. Doc, what would you, how would you, what's your response to this sequencing here with, or Karen, did you have something? No. Try. No, no. Here, just a thought, because to me, it's a. I mean, it goes back to our struggles with sequence all along in this, um, and this is a, to me, a really good example of it. 
it, it seems to me one of the things we can say, it, it, I, I happen to believe that, um, that Thomas is right on this, that Satan fell. It was um, how much he knew in foreknowledge of God is another thing. That he did it because he learned that God did it um, to not let Satan have it. I, I, I just, I think that's a sad description of God. But it seems to me one, we can say a couple of things here. One of them is that we know from this revelation that um, Satan fell earlier because we've had descriptions of he was there in the garden long before Eve, I mean long before Mary. So he was there at creation. He, he didn't just create problems after Christ. But it's a question for me, the serious question I'm asking myself on why John puts that here is that whatever the animus was for, for Satan, when he fell, and I think it was in pride that he was the greatest angel, and and he he didn't want to be contingent. He wanted to see himself as his own creator. That he didn't owe anything to anybody. That pride, that to me defines Satan in a nutshell. It's wanting to live for yourself, not serving, um, believing you're your own creator, and not wanting to acknowledge your creature. But by putting it here, he shows that um, one, of the, one of the greatest things that Satan had to deal with was everything that he wanted to do when he revolted, which was to destroy God and undermine him. So when a savior comes into the world, the one thing he would have wanted to do, because everything in him was to, against creation, an answer to sin, an answer to the sin he set in motion with Eve, the one thing he would have wanted to do is get that creature and the woman. So for me, it's a way of highlighting, underscoring the importance of Christ and salvation and the height of Satan's animus against him because everything he said in motion was to destroy God, undo everything he did, and Christ was the answer. Well, did Satan uh, influence Aaron by sending out everybody to kill the babies? Say it again, Bob. Did Satan at that time would have been active as far as influencing Herod. <laughs> Good, Herod, all of them, Pilate, yeah. who have put it, yeah. Going out and, and killing all the babies yeah. Getting, getting yeah, right, right. So yes. That, I guess, could be in pursuit of Mary, but showing that, that. Yeah. At that point, he was still pursuing Mary. Yeah. Uh, is everybody following? I'm suggesting is we've, we've got a problem of sequence. But we have to be careful about being too literal, too literal in a linear sequence. But what you can say is this focus is the problem. Satan wanted to undo God. The whole aim was to destroy anything God made. I don't think that's a reason why God made creation. That's Milton. But we can say Satan wanted that not to happen, to undo everything he did, and Christ was the answer to it. Let me stop. Just think about it. I want to read because we're <laughs> past time. This is the end, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of a heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is after Babylon. It's after the destruction of Rome. It's after the destruction of all these cities that want to replace God. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. 
He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. It goes on like this. It's, to me, it's an extraordinary ending. I want to go to the end now. Um, where John signs off. He does everything he can to corroborate, to validate the truth of this. He's not getting the second hand. He's, it's an eyewitness accounts. He was at Patmos on the level, or on the island, sorry, when he wrote the letters right to the churches. And this is a revelation he received then. So we're getting a first-hand account from him. He's doing everything he can to authenticate this this scripture. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am he who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. He says, I am the Alpha, the Omega. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the, by the tree of right, the tree of life, sorry, is the antithesis of the cross, okay? Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let whom his... Let he, him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord to Jesus. Remember, Jesus cries out, Come, let him who hears say, Come. So the, the bridegroom and the bride are answering each other, Come, come. Um, you, know, you almost can't get any more beautiful than that. Let me just, one thing, because it's, um, why, did, why did God allow for that millennium, that thousand? I've suggested this before, but just to underscore it. What's the difference between going into a battle when you don't know the outcome of it, and going into a battle when you do know the outcome already. Depends if you're on the winning or losing side. <laughs> <laughs> if you know that God's already... Wait. If you know, you can't have a question about your faith anymore. Right? He doesn't leave, what he, do, he doesn't leave it in doubt anymore. 
If you ever had a reason, now it's taken away. The question will be now whether you live your faith. It's going to be a trial. I mean, over and over he talks about endurance and hope. We know the outcome. He's done everything he can to help us. Everything he can. We know the outcome. There should not be a doubt in anybody's... Um, he's done everything he can to help us. Now can we live it? Now can we do take all this seriously? Okay. All of you, have a good break. And I hope you know how much of a pleasure this is for me every week to have this time with you guys. It's always wonderful. You guys... It's always a strong struggle, but it's pleasurable, too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to say. <laughs> well, all I can say, Bob, is if that's the case, you've been amazing because that means you've been taking on a struggle for, what, the last three years? <laughs>